We carry on this evening in our studies through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let's remember what was going on in the city of Ephesus at the time. Let's remember there was a large temple in the middle which oversaw a huge amount of the city. And there people went to worship the Greek goddess Artemis. And the whole city was based around that. And then on the streets was the might of the Roman Empire. And then amongst these two superpowers, there was this small new church made up of new believers, which to the rest of the city would have looked weak insignificant, irrelevant, foolish. And Paul writes to this church, telling them about God's eternal plan to unite everything under Christ through his death and resurrection, and this work will be, will be made known through his church. But before we turn to our passage this evening, I want us to remember how Paul describe these Christians. Let me run through some passages for us. As you begin, Paul describes them at the start as saints, people who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He says that God has chosen them to be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love they were predestined. He goes on to say that they were dead in trespasses and sins, but now made alive together with Christ by grace, and now seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms. They are together now members of the household of God, together being filled with the fullness of God, together a dwelling place for the Spirit of God, together members of one new man. This is who the Christians are now, as Paul writes them. This is who we are now. This is how God sees us. This is what God is doing in us, building us together into a new dwelling place, building us together as members of one new man. Now, I want us to really get this as we start, for us who are Christians here tonight, to be assured of our salvation. With this in mind, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And tonight we're looking from verses 3 to 21. Let me read for us from verse 1 of chapter 5. If you've got a church Bible, we're on page 1176. Paul writes, as we saw last week, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children... And live a life, remember we saw that was walk, walk a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me pray as we begin. Father, we need your help this evening as we look at your word. We incline our hearts to your word and not to any darkness or foolishness the world has to offer us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things we ask this evening. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a look at verse 3 as we begin, and let's just address what perhaps many of us are thinking. This is an awkward passage. It's awkward for me. It's awkward for you. Why is that? Well, because apart from the youngest here, all of us have sinned sexually, and probably will sin sexually again. Let's just acknowledge that now as we begin. See, we heard of who we are now in Christ and all that assurance that brings. And then we read chapter 5, and for many of us, there is a tension within us. How do we cope with this tension we find in our hearts? Well, what Paul goes on to say is because we are part of God's plan, he exhorts us, he exhorts us to walk wisely in the light living distinctly different lives. How does he do that? Well, as we see in the slides behind us, he calls us to flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because we walk as children of light. And how do we do that? By walking in spirit-filled wisdom. If you're here this evening and you aren't a Christian, I'm really glad that you're here tonight. I'd love to hear afterwards what your thoughts are after we look at this passage. Perhaps if you're like my friend, you think that Christianity is a bunch of rules, things you can't do, things you shouldn't do, and as you read this passage, you go, aha, I was right. But in one sense, you are right. Let's, let's be honest. Paul does start off with some negatives, three negatives in verse three. Why don't we all have a look at them? But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. 
This word sexual immorality, many of us know as the word pornea, where of course we get the words pornography from. What Paul's talking about here isn't limited to just pornography, but it's all sexual activity outside of marriage. Marriage which is between one man and one woman for life. Some of you here are engaged in long-term relationships. The temptation can be, well, I'm going to get married anyway, let's just have sex now. Paul says, no, you still have to wait. Sex is a sign of the covenant you make, but the promise comes first. But Pornea, this includes a huge range of things. Things which are very common in our culture today. Erotic novels. Masturbation outside of the marriage bed. Even having that second glance at somebody lusting after them. See, this sexual immorality, it's every lustful lustful thought or action which takes place outside of marriage. And striking, it's not just a modern issue, is it? It was here as well in Ephesus. Now, don't hear me wrong. Paul isn't saying sex is bad. He's saying that we're prone to misuse it. Sex is a beautiful gift from God, given for the intimacy and the holding together of marriage. God is for sex. But he knows that when it's misused, people get hurt. Because it isn't purely a physical act. Paul says, let, not, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. Then notice he broadens it to impurity. Impurity of any kind, not just sexually, but, but drunkenness, crudeness. He's not saying don't go out and have fun. Don't go out on nights out. That is, unless that fun Unless those nights out are causing you to be impure. I think you can simply ask, would Jesus have laughed at that joke? Would he be joining in, in this, this banter we're having just now? Would I go onto that website if he was sitting here beside me? I notice he moves on to greed. What is a greedy person? Well, you don't need to have a lot to be greedy. See, greed is this desire to be this desire that can never be filled, this insatiable appetite and want for more and more and more, more money, more food, more of the latest, more of the biggest. See, often, not, often wanting those things isn't bad in and of themselves. But for many of us, we struggle with this hedonistic lifestyle of indulging our pleasures, our appetites, the temptation to get and to keep and to hoard Now, why does Paul mention these three things in particular? Why does Paul write these to the people in Ephesus? Well, these three things were were common, most likely, through the culture with with temple worship, reading Acts 9, the the idol makers who are greedy, getting pretty annoyed at what's going on. What's common between all of them is they all focus on the self. They all focus on the individual. They all focus on self-gratification. And that is the opposite of love. Let's have a think about what Paul has just said. Paul's just written from verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. What is walking that way of love look like? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself 
up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. These three things are all about the self. Love is all about the other. And Paul saying, this is why you don't go after these things. That's not walking in love. And he goes on, doesn't he, at the end of verse 3. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Don't go after them because they aren't holy. He says, you, God's people, are holy, so live a holy life. I was visually reminded of what this looks like a few years ago. When I used to work for UCCF, um, one of my colleagues, her husband, is a photographer, a remarkable photographer. And uh, my colleague was showing me a photo he took once of a father standing, looking and pointing out at a beautiful view. And he's there and he's holding his daughter, pointing out also, looking at this beautiful view. And you go, isn't that cute, the two of them, they're together. And then you notice that the father has got a slight bend in his finger, some genetic condition, I assume, and he's looking out, pointing this bent finger. Then he notices the daughter as well has the same thing, and she's pointing out with this bent finger as well. And my colleague goes, isn't this a beautiful photo, this father and daughter here? And she goes, but what's most amazing, though, is his daughter's adopted. This dad had the, the squint finger pointing because of his genetics. The daughter does it, because the father does it. She's been brought into that family, and so she copies what her father does. And Paul's saying it's the same thing with us. We've been brought into the family of holiness to live as who you now are. You are in the kingdom, the holy kingdom, so don't live like this description of those who aren't in the holy kingdom. They are idolaters, he says. And let's remember, these guys knew what idolatry was. They just came from all of that. What's most striking probably to them is this idolatry isn't small statues, but rather it's issues of the heart, attitudes of the heart. And let's not miss what he says in verse 3. There must not even be a hint of these things. Don't flirt with these things. Don't entertainment. Don't think, how close can I get to you? That's missing the point. Should not even be a hint because there's not even a hint of them in God. We are his holy people. Notice he moves on. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. See, if the moral living of verse 3 is inappropriate, then of course speaking with filthy language that makes light of that is also out of place. So I've met Christians both when I was a student and when I was working with students who who often said to me, actually Craig, it's okay to, to swear or to to say rude jokes, laugh at rude jokes, boast about how much we used to drink, boast about our former sexual exploits, as long as it's just when you're with Christians. Because that doesn't ruin your witness to non-Christians. Well, we see, Paul says no, there's, there's no room for that at all. There shouldn't even be a hint of these things. What is there room for? What is the antidote to all of these issues. Notice, end of verse 4, thanksgiving. See, these, these things he lists all focus on the self, whereas thanksgiving focuses not on the self, but on the other. It focuses on God. On God and his overflowing generosity and all that he's done for us in Christ. And all that we've seen in chapters 1 to 3. As one commentator writes, he says, sexual disobedience in Christians 
is generally caused to some degree by the spiritual amnesia of forgetting God's grace and then feeling sorry for ourselves and entitled to indulge in sinful appetites. And some of us here will probably be feeling just like that. Perhaps you stumbled last night or even this afternoon. Perhaps some of us keep thinking about someone that we really want to have sex with who isn't our spouse. Perhaps some of us just feel like we can't control ourselves and we keep doing everything in the excess. Perhaps some of us are here and uh, we're single and we're tempted to think that if only I was married, this would be easier. Well, marriage isn't going to make it easier for you. If you're here and you are single or you're struggling with same-sex attraction, it must be really hard for you at times. But take comfort here that Paul is writing to everybody because sexual immorality is something that we all struggle with. And the help in that struggle, thanksgiving, reminds us that Jesus is enough. But Paul goes on to warn us that if we aren't giving thanks and we're choosing to live unrepentant lives of sexual immorality, of impurity and of greed, we're therefore idolaters. And we won't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Stark what he writes, isn't it? But we must be careful though. There will always be people out to deceive us. I had a former colleague who, um, as he say, struggled with same-sex attraction. And he found this really, really hard. Because if you want to do something, you will find someone who agrees with what you want to do. And tragically, often, the voices of disobedience come from within the church. Don't be deceived by them. Don't be partners with them. As Paul goes on to say, in the end, God's wrath is coming upon them. Don't be deceived by the darkness. Because it will kill you. Instead, thanksgiving. What we all need to do is not to say, I'm sorry to God. But to say thank you as well. And as you say, thank you, we focus away from the self-pity of ourselves. And as we remember the gospel, we look to Christ. Paul warns us, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because we walk as children of light. Have a look at verse 8 in your Bibles. Notice it says here, it does not say you were once in darkness, but you were darkness. The darkness was part of us, inseparable from us. But now you are light and Lord. Walk as children of light. Sounds great, but what does that mean? How do we actually go about doing that? Well, it's not simply we are now in the light of the Lord, but we are light in the Lord. If we are being remade, remember, into this new humanity, the new man in Christ... 
And what comes from walking as children of light? What fruit grows as a result of it? Have a look at verse 9. The generosity of Christ's goodness, the willing obedience of Christ's righteousness, and the delight and honesty of Christ's truth. And from this fruit will also come a desire to find out what pleases the will of the Lord. Why? Because we are made into the new man, made after Christ's likeness, who did not do his own will, but said, did the will of the Father. So before we speak, before we send that email, before we go home tonight and put the TV on or go on the internet or whatever, think, is this good? Is it right? Is it true? If I say this, do that, watch this, will it please the Lord? If you walked into the room at the very moment I said that, would it please him? So I wonder if we asked these questions, I think for many of us, our mouths would be shut more than they are, and our screens would be off more than they are. See, if we are saying yes to living one way, it therefore means that we are saying no to living another way. We say no to the deeds of darkness. Why? Because they are fruitless. We say no to them and we expose them. What does it mean to have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness? Well, it doesn't mean retreating. It doesn't mean that we retreat into a sort of Christian part of the city. It doesn't mean that we retreat into only working for Christians, only buying things from Christians, only integrating with Christians. That's not what he means here. Why? Because we therefore couldn't do the second half of verse 11. We couldn't possibly expose them. And yet, verse 12, Paul says, don't even talk about what people do in secret. What does that mean? What well, means don't make what they do normal in conversation. How do we do this? How do we expose the darkness? And how do we not even talk about what they do in secret? Let me try and explain it this way. I wonder if you've ever been wearing a white shirt, perhaps at school or at work, and you're there in your pristine white shirt, and then your friend comes up to you, and you're chatting to them, and then you realize, actually, their shirt is white. My shirt turned that funny grey colour, that shirt's turned. And then you realise actually, because you've seen them, that you need to get a new white shirt. One of my lecturers constantly quotes Thomas Chalmers, the first moderator of the Free Church, who once said that for every one that is saved, ten are moralised. I never got that until looking at this passage this week. See, this is what Paul's describing here in verse 13. That as you, the light, in your white shirt, go out into the workplace, meet the friends, you shine out in that place. And you, one shining person, as the light in the Lord, can illuminate the ten around you. So you see that their shirts are actually grey. And sometimes when that happens, we get backlash for it. We may walk into the staff room and everyone goes quiet when you walk in because they're talking about you. And that can be really hard at times. But it should also encourage us as well because something's happening. They're noticing something different. 
See, darkness to light, death to life is often triggered by the witness of a believer who shines as a bright light. I know a number of testimonies here and previously of people whose testimonies who begin, I met so-and-so who was a Christian at work and then, I met so-and-so who was a Christian sports team and then. See, these people living as light provided opportunities for them to then speak the gospel and for this person later to be saved. This is why I think Paul quotes from Isaiah 16, verse 15. Christ has risen from the grave as the light of the world, and as we follow him, his light shines through us, for we are united to him, and he shines on the world through us, for we are light in the Lord. Paul calls us to flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because we walk as children of light. And how do we flee? By walking in spirit-filled wisdom. Look down at verse 15 in your Bibles. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Let's, let's dig into here. Let's see what Paul's going on uh, in these verses. Make the most of every opportunity. What does that mean? What I don't think it means is being as efficient as possible. Rather being as effective as possible. Well, how do you know what we are to be effective in? And what does it matter that the days are evil? I ask you, well, what is the Lord's will in verse 17? Have we seen this already in Ephesians, this idea of the Lord's will? Yes, we have. Back in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, which says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What is his will to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ? This is God's will, uniting all things under Christ. What is that? It means people becoming Christians. It means people growing as Christians as they understand what it means to live out as part of being the one new man. Therefore, every day is an opportunity to proclaim Christ to others and for us to grow in Christ. And how do we go about doing this? Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, a reference to their culture similar to ours. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Does that mean that we are like leaky buckets and we topped up with the Holy Spirit? Well, as you saw two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit is a he. He's not some sort of fluid. He's, he's a spirit, but he's indivisible. I wouldn't say I've got 60% of my brother coming for tea. Either he's all there or he's none of them's there. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. Either you have all of him or you have none of him. But what does it mean to be filled? Where have we seen this, this filling language in Ephesians? We see in 123, Christ who fills everything. 319, Paul prays, may be filled with the fullness of God. 410, Christ fills all things. But what does the Holy Spirit do in Ephesians? And what does it mean to be filled with him? Well, we've seen over the coming, the previous weeks and months, that the Holy Spirit brings about union. He brings about order. 
He is the one that transforms us into the likeness of Christ. He is the one that enables us to comprehend the love of Christ. This is his work in us. So as we are filled by the Spirit, it means to know more and more of the love of Christ. But notice the contrast here. Being filled with alcohol brings about disorder and debauchery. Being filled with the Spirit brings about order and life change. Some of us may have heard the phrase, being slain in the Spirit, which then results in people falling on the floor. Might I suggest that that is not being filled with the Spirit. That's actually the opposite of what's being described here. See, look what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So as to build one another up, encourage one another, and praise the Lord in our hearts, both when we're together and when we are apart. See, this is the vehicle through which we live, thanking God. This is the vehicle that enables us to flee sexual immorality. This is the vehicle that enables us to submit to one another. See, the first evidences of the spirit-filled Christian is not that you have more of him, because you already have all of the Holy Spirit. It's that he has more of you. And so you sing and praise God for what he has done. And as you sing, you, you, you look around in the church seeking to encourage one another as you sing the Lord's praises. It means our eyes shouldn't always be on the screen, but on those we are singing with. And it doesn't matter if you're a bad singer. You join in and you bellow out. And those around you should be encouraged. And as we all bellow out together, our whole being is pointed to God. And there's genuine, heartfelt singing to the Lord. It's not about how loud you sing, rather how heartfelt your singing is. See, it's, it's important that we sing to God. I think if we don't, there is a disconnect between our head and the heart. It's all input. We're receiving things and it's not being translated into worshipping God. So when the Holy Spirit, who we already have from when we became a Christian, is filling our life, we become people who are no longer focused on the self, but on the other. People who are thankful always. Thankful always and in everything in the name of Christ. And people who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Tonight we've been focusing on the thanksgiving element. And next week we'll see how that leads into submitting to one another. For both of these together are what it looks like to walk in spirit-filled wisdom. Spirit-filled wisdom which enables us to flee from sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. So let us walk as children of light and walk in spirit-filled wisdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are sinful people. Sinful people in need of your grace. We confess that we are selfish people in need of your love. We confess that we are foolish people in need of your wisdom. Lord Jesus, thank you for the work that you are doing in us and building us together into a dwelling place 
of the Spirit. Together making us members of the one new humanity in Christ. Father, I ask that tonight, may the comfortable have been challenged. May those who've been challenged be comforted. Thank you for the honesty of your word. Help us to live in light of who we are in Christ, encouraging one another to flee from all sin and instead to walk in our union with him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our last song together in Christ alone. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. So as the band begin to play, please stand with me and sing our final hymn together and then remain standing for our benediction.